Hi, welcome to episode 75 of the American Tributaries podcast, where to break out of the bubbles we've all been living in. We're using modern technology to explore the various currents of people in our great country, kind of like 21st century Lewis and Clark journey. I'm your host, Michael Whitten, here in Brooklyn, New York, and thank you for joining me in this exploration of America. Today, I'm honored to be joined by Ed Toplinson, who is a professor at West Virginia University. Um, we connected through the organization Braver Angels, and I'm really excited to have uh, Ed on. Ed, thanks so much for joining me today. How are you doing? And could you share a bit of your story? Absolutely, Michael. It's a pleasure to join you this evening. Thank you for inviting me, and I'm honored to accept. As you mentioned, I am a professor. Uh, I'm a professor of management in the Chambers College of Business and Economics at West Virginia University, and I'm also, as you mentioned, very involved in the Braver Angels organization. I am the uh, Red Co-Chair for the West Virginia Braver Angels Alliance. I am the uh, state co-coordinator for West Virginia as well. I am a Braver Angels certified card carrying moderator for their various programs. And I'm also on the Braver Angels Scholars Council. Yeah, so heavily involved. How did you get involved with Braver Angels? Well, <clears throat> it's been several years now and my recollection is a little bit fuzzy. But somehow or another, I have become aware of the organization, probably because I am a member of Heterodox Academy, which is a group of faculty spanning the ideological spectrum that is concerned about conformity in academia and works to champion viewpoint diversity. And the founder of Heterodox Academy is John Haidt. He's a social psychologist by training, and he is also a business school professor at NYU Stern. And so he was a founder of Braver Angels and is also very involved with uh, Braver Angels. So he's on their board. And so I might have heard about Braver Angels through my association with Heterodox Academy several years ago. Somehow or another, I had been contacted by Donna Murphy who is also very involved at Braver Angels. And she was leading an initiative at the time to get more Braver Angels alliances in states that did not currently have one. And so West Virginia was on her list, on her to-do list. And somehow or another, she found me or I found her and the rest is history. That's how it all started. And then I guess I'd ask them, like, why did the Braver Angels mission resonate enough for you want to, be, to want to not only become involved, but to be very actively involved? Yeah, so there's a professional interest, of course. As I mentioned, I'm a professor of management. My primary area of emphasis is in organizational behavior, although I do teach courses in human resource management as well. And more specifically, my Research expertise deals with conflict management and especially trust and trust, how it's established in interpersonal relationships, how it can be repaired once it's been broken and so forth and so on. And just in seeing what's happening in our society and people losing trust in institutions and losing trust in each other and the political polarization is something that concerns me. It is a prominent issue in work organizations. People clock in and they don't sort of leave their their political views behind them when they clock in necessarily and so forth and so on. And so there are just a lot of uh, a lot of issues in our society right now in workplaces and beyond where we don't trust each other anymore. We don't know how to work through conflict with each other anymore. All of those things are a professional interest to me as well as a personal interest. You know, I was um I I was in the Navy back in the mid '90s, and my ship was recently decommissioned just uh like last weekend, and I got together with some of those shipmates, and I was in the wardroom. I was an officer, and one of the things that I was um I guess to be marveling at um during the reunion was how you know, we all kind of have gone on to do different things. Like somebody lives in Madison, somebody lives in Dubai, somebody lives in Las Vegas. And we all came to that ship from different trajectories, but yet we all kind of overlapped and worked in a very intense atmosphere for, you know, just a a year or so, or maybe just a few months in some cases, but there was kind of a bond and a trust. And, you know, we were out, you know, went out to get some beers afterwards. And there's kind of this, there's this camaraderie that I don't think you get in the civilian world at all. I'd agree with that. 
I'd agree with that. That really resonates with me. My undergraduate work was done at Virginia Military Institute. And while mm -hmm. I did not go into active duty after graduation, I have some, you know, I've had some similar experiences and any type <clears throat> of military organization really excels at sort of uh, establishing that, that esprit de corps, right? That, that, yeah. uh, that type of unity where you just build bonds with other people from all different walks of life and it's nearly indestructible. And, uh, you know, the military has figured out how to do something very, very special that we perhaps need to replicate uh, at scale throughout other, other societal institutions. Yeah. I don't think it necessarily and means shaving everyone's head and screaming at them for 13 weeks or what have you, but uh, there's something well, about going through shared adversity that really builds a very tight bond. And, and and I think even I think even the shared disagreement, like I, I think that, you know, my family, my wife and I, like we have heated discussions sometimes and disagreements and we can be very angry at each other. But it's kind of like the it's almost like the stretching and then coming back is what strengthens the relationship. And I don't necessarily I don't necessarily think it's bad that there's disagreement in the country. I think it's bad how we disagree. I think it's bad at, you know, we worry more about like what you think instead of how you think, um, you know, how, what you believe instead of how you believe. And I think that's the problem, because I think in some respect, you could if you were to look at a democracy or look at America and look at all the politicians just getting along. Like that just means like who knows what's going on there, right? They could all just be like, you know, taking care of each other and, you know, fleecing the voters as well. So it doesn't necessarily mean if you don't want people getting along, you just want them to disagree in a productive way that's committed to some overarching truth or system. And it feels like now, you know, whether it's the left or the right, if there's something that goes wrong politically, it's like people just start saying, well, the whole system needs to be overturned. We need to get rid of the electoral college. We need to do this or do that. Like it doesn't. And I think to me, that's what gets most exhausting is like, we can't just kind of go keep going back and forth. When your guy wins, yay, the system's great. When your guy loses, yay, you know, oh, boo, the system sucks. Let's That's overturn right. it. Yeah. So there's a really great book on that topic that I read over the summer by a guy named Francis Fukuyama. And he is a scholar that's written a very prominent book in uh, on trust in our, in our literature, research literature. And but more recently, he's written a book and it's a short book. And I don't agree with everything he argues in there, but it's called Liberalism and its Discontents. <clears throat> and Liberalism is not liberals as in on the political spectrum, liberals versus conservatives. Liberalism here is meant more broadly in terms of, um, you know, just sort of the, the enlightenment ideals, right? That, that, you know, people have personal property, that there are, that there's due process, that there's, you know, there's a, <clears throat> a legal framework. It's not the law of the jungle, all those types of things, right? That that's in that sense of, of liberalism. And we lose sight of just, you know, you throw that word out there and, you know, uh, it raises all these all these connotations like, oh, well, you know, you're on the left or what. No, no, no. This is this is the system that we all live under. And it's just like kind of Democrats versus Republicans. We live in a democratic republic. Right. So but, you know, uh, anyway, so he he goes on to explain how liberalism has become not only misunderstood, but how it has, how, how parties, are, how, how certain parties on both the left and the right have become disgruntled. And it's exactly what you just described, whether it's, you know, you're on the left or the right, it's, it's, it's sort of uh, a fair weather assessment of, of liberalism, right? Uh, to the extent that it's even properly understood. It's like, well, I'm not getting my way right now. Uh, and so because this is not working out and I'm not getting everything that I want in a pluralistic society, then I'm going to rage against this. And we see this from people who are on both sides of the aisle. And mm -hmm. it is very dis disconcerting. But liberalism is what allows, classic liberalism, mind you, is mm -hmm. what allows us to be able to live together in peace. We can't jettison it. We can't throw out the baby with the bathwater. We can't, um, you know, uh, throw a temper tantrum every time something doesn't go our way and, and make 
every little dispute something that we're going to resort to a mushroom cloud over. That's not constructive. Yeah. yeah. Well, you know, and maybe this touches upon your profession too, but you know, is it is it possible that I mean I mean I like to say like when people get frustrated with the government, again, across the spectrum, right? Have you ever done something at work that went smoothly? We all work in small little organizations that are not nearly the size of the United States of America, right? And it can take forever to get a PowerPoint slide approved by the right people for a presentation. It takes, you know, it takes forever to, you know, to, uh, you know, merge together two companies, you know, or to spin off a company. Um, it ta- it can take a while for somebody to come in, come in and become the new vice president of some small section of a big company. So when you're looking at the United States of America and you're thinking about how hard it is or you get frustrated because there are problems, you get frustrated because things don't happen the way you want, you get frustrated because you disagree, it's almost it's, – it's, it is so – I don't know, and not even like say like entitled. It's it's so it's it's amazing <laughs> that any of us would really get frustrated and not be more patient. And to go even further, I mean, you're now talking about you know a 330 million person nation that's spread across three time zones. That's that's one of the largest in the world. That's one of the most populous in the world. That has all these different terrains. We've got tropical, we got subtropical, we got tundra, we have like everything. So. Right. Of course, we're going to disagree. Of course, things aren't going to happen exactly the way we want. And I think it's like a constant state of like evolution and frustration. And then you throw in technology where all of a sudden we used to all live in our own little bubbles where you were interacting with a few hundred people that were just like you. And now all of a sudden you're hearing every freaking viewpoint in the country, if not the world, and some of them are even real. So I, <laughs> sure. I think we should all like give ourselves, cut ourselves some slack, and be like, "Yeah, this is this is a rough time. We're gonna have to get through this." I don't think it's the end of the world. I just think this is the challenge for our generation. I agree. Yeah, so, and as the tagline for Heterodox Academy states, "Great minds don't all think alike," and uh, <laughs> and so and so we have to recognize that too. There is, you know, we live in a pluralistic society. Different people are going to have different points of view. Highest priority of some people is not the highest priority of others, and we need to rediscover how to agree to disagree and and to uh, to engage in civil discourse and to uh, work through our problems constructively, not destructively. Yeah, I mean, have you seen? I mean, a change one way or the other, and either in your work with Bravery Angels or in your hometown of West Virginia, like one way or the other in the last few years, say since 2016? I think there are some optimistic things that are happening. There are a lot of organizations, and Braver Angels is only one, but there are many organizations that are working in this depolarization space where depolarization is is referring to the the dislike and the distrust we have of other people who think differently than we do. So, So obviously, we should have ideological polarization in the sense that different people are going to have different worldviews, different ways of, of looking at the world, different ways of thinking about the world, different ways of interacting with the world, different preferences, different values, structures, and so forth and so on. We should expect that. We should be ready to, to encounter that and to cope with that. What we should not be so quick to do is to label anyone who disagrees with us or votes for the other guy, so to speak, uh, to 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 vilify them, to demonize them, to uh, engage in sort of dehumanizing behaviors and things like that. That's not constructive. That that's what we researchers call affective polarization. That's not healthy. That's really toxic stuff. And mm. so there are a lot of organizations. Braver Angels is only one, but many organizations that are working in that space and doing some really great things. And so, just to kind of give you a sense of. <clears throat> Another organization that I that I work with, uh, well, actually, another two organizations that I work with that are relevant to what I do professionally. So, in all of my courses that I teach at WVU, I require students to go through the perspectives lessons that were uh, it, that John Height originally had a hand in, and now they're administered by Constructive Dialogue Institute, and it basically teaches the skills of uh, civil discourse in political disputes. So I require that for all of my courses. Their programs are, the learning modules are online. So, you know, students create a username and password and they go through these lessons on their own time. 
and they learn why it is that we get so upset with people who see things differently than us politically, right? And mm-hmm. they learn all about, you know, the social psychology behind all of this. And they learn constructive ways of having these conversations in a civil way so they can learn. And then the other organization that is relevant for a course I'm teaching this fall on conflict management is, uh, uh, so this is Unify America. And they have their annual college bowl. So the Unify America College Bowl. And so after my students have gone through the Constructive Dialogue Institute's perspective lessons, then they participate in the college bowl. And so what 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 that involves is they are signing up for a one hour conversation with another college student somewhere else. OK, that is different from them politically. So when they sign up, they indicate their political leanings. And then they're matched with someone on sort of the other side of the spectrum, if you will, for a one hour conversation, structured conversation. And this isn't like a, a Twitter or an X or a, you know, a conversation that, that typically turns into a big dumpster fire, right? Or a Facebook yeah. argument or something like that. This is, there's some guardrails there, but it's, so it's kind of a structured conversation, uh, but it's not moderated. It's just a one-on-one conversation between people who do not see eye to eye politically and uh, and what they discover almost uh, almost without fail, almost completely consistently, is that there's some there are some things that they do agree on, and they they enter this conversation with a great deal of anxiety and trepidation, and they leave with a great sense of um, hope, reassurance. Right. That this isn't as bad as some of the pundits and some of the media personalities and whatever would have us uh, think it is. You know, it's more optimistic. The reason to be more optimistic than that. And yep. that is such an encouragement to them and to me, too. So see, these are some of the things I see happening. I don't think it's happening enough. I think we need to keep working. I think we still have our work cut out for us. There are entrenched uh, parties on both sides who have vested interests, the conflict in our nation has, is something that they have capitalized on as a source of their power. And if the conflict is tamped down to a more reasonable level (laughs) uh, or, or is largely resolved, that takes away their source of power. I think we can readily identify people on both sides of the spectrum who, you know, they have a vested interest in, in, not only maintaining the current levels of conflict, but continuing to stoke them. Uh, Amanda Ripley is a journalist who's written a book on conflict, and she refers to these people as conflict entrepreneurs. Like that's their business model, yep. right? Yeah, yeah. And and so they don't want this to go away. They don't want this problem to be solved. They have too much to gain by by keeping it going. Uh, so we need to continue working to expand the footprint of these depolarization initiatives so that we can rediscover our our shared humanity uh, we have a lot more in common than than we than what divides us and we need to rediscover that yeah not you to in any way mis- minimize <laughs> the differences that we have because there are some big differences i'm not i'm not sweeping that under the rug i'm not uh denying that but I think too often it's it's a temptation for us to just inexorably get sort of drawn into the conflict and and only focus on what yeah. divides us and overlook many areas of of shared values and and overlapping concerns and things like this. Yeah, no that that's true and and I you know I feel like the Anytime I've reached out, and and this is something for me that I've really only been trying to do since like 2020 or 2020 as as the world started opening up for us here in New York, but is um, like reaching out and and finding out that there's 
I don't, I don't, I don't, I think that there's understandable difference. Like I, to me, like, you know, you, to go back to like the domestic model, like, you know, my wife and I are, you know, pledged our lives to each other and we have plenty of things we disagree with. So how could I look at somebody who's in West Virginia or Montana or Texas and think that their framework of perceiving the world and I think, I think um, another braver angel, I think it was Monica Guzman in her book. I think it was her where she talked about how <laughs> a lot of times it's not that somebody doesn't think something is important it's just that the way they prioritize things is going to be a little bit different and i think that there's that and and at least for me i think that the way the the way the politics runs and i think this is where it's the people's fault it's our responsibility is that i think that we all eat up politicians like we, we 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 want politicians who will provide us easy solutions that leave us blameless and leave us burdenless. So it's like there is gun problems. Well, we have to get rid of the guns and we're not going to bother you. We're not going to say that there's anything wrong in your cities or in your communities that's stoking the violence. It's not your fault. We're not going to make you do anything. We're going to make other people sacrifice without you doing sacrifice. And that's all people want. We, we all, I think, are voting for politicians that give us the easy solutions that don't make us feel like we're responsible and make us actually sacrifice. You can say, well, I'm going to sacrifice too, but you're already doing something that's within your comfort zone. If you're just saying, Hey, let's get, let's get rid of this or let's mandate composting. And you say, well, I'm sacrificing too, but that's not, but you're doing what you already want to do. <laughs> you're making other people do something that they don't want to do. So if you really are worried about the environment, it's not enough to make other people do what you're doing. It's how about more? How about adding a $500 tax to airplane flights that go overseas because they're better for the environment. I bet you'd see a lot of liberals all of a sudden say, no, 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 I don't want, I don't want to have a t- tax on my flight to Italy, you know? And, and, and I'm, and I'm, I'm sure it goes both ways, but I think that to me is part of it mm-hmm. where I think we all as people, in some respect, I've turned off the news in the last year and a half because I feel like I've got to learn about my fellow Americans and then start electing politicians that reflect i think hopefully my more i think reasoned worldview of this country which is i think there's a lot of good people out there and we're getting a very distorted depiction of the stuff that's out there on the news yeah yeah i think so so um so can you so i've i've never I, I was proud to say that I drove through a corner of West Virginia over the summer, but I've never been to West Virginia. So are you a native of West Virginia? No, I am from regular Virginia. Okay. And yeah, so I'm from Lynchburg, Virginia, right in the middle. So central Virginia. Mm-hmm. And my wife is from Northeast Ohio. And we met when I was a PhD student at the Ohio State University in Columbus, And then after we got married, we lived up in the outside of the Cleveland area for seven years. And then we came here. So so my family is from Virginia and her family is from Ohio. And we wound up in the middle, so to speak. Yeah. (laughs) So this is our 13th year here. Mm -hmm. And so so neither of us are native to West Virginia but we we've really enjoyed living here. It's a wonderful, wonderful place. And and what did you, I guess, expect? I mean, you you grew up nearby, so maybe you already had kind of informed expectations. But what did you expect, and what have you, I guess, discovered that maybe it was different? Yeah, I didn't really know what to expect because, like you, the only time that I had spent any time in West Virginia was driving from Virginia to Ohio and back. Right. Mm-hmm. And so it was all interstate, stop at a gas station, whatever. And I didn't really, uh, you know, I'd never really had spent much time in West Virginia. My wife's different, you know, so in her family, they had a tradition for years and years and years where they would occasion, where they would every year they would have a family reunion at Babcock State Park. And I don't know if you've ever seen that sort of quintessential picture uh, of West Virginia, there's a picture of an old mill and a you know a creek running past. It's just it's a classic picture. So that's that mill is at Babcock State Park, and so every year they would go and they would have a family reunion there. They would you know do camp. They rent a, a, some cabins and all of this kind of thing, 
And um, so she had regular exposure to bona fide uh, West Virginia. And, but I never, I had never really spent any, any significant amount of time here. And we didn't really know what to expect, me especially. And, uh, but we've really, really enjoyed it. It's beautiful, beautiful, wonderful people. Um, Just, just a wonderful place. Yeah. Um, What would you say is your ideal off day? My ideal off day. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, So I, I haven't had an ideal one in a while. (laughs) <laughs> uh, so I'll, I'll, you know, qualify it that way, I guess. But, uh, but I really love shooting. And, uh, and so, uh, and so there are a lot of places here to go do that. Um, there are, you know, indoor, uh, gun ranges, there are outdoor gun ranges that are, even sponsored by the state. They were fantastic facilities. They have covered pavilions at the firing line with these really nice um, uh, shooting benches. So you can sit down if you want to do long range. And uh, they've got berms at different distances for backstops and just fantastic, you know. And, uh, And then there are other places you can go to do, you know, shotgun, you know, whatever whatever you're into. And, uh, so I, but I'm into target shooting and I really, uh, really enjoy that. And that's kind of a, how I unwind and relax. And sometimes the kids come with me and they, uh, you know, so it's, we kind of make a family event. So, mm-hmm. yeah. Did you pick up the shooting at VMI or is that something you had been? Uh, well, so before? in high school, I, yeah, when I was in high school, I went to a public high school that had a junior ROTC, program. And so I had gotten into small bore rifle shooting. I was on the rifle team. I became the captain of our high school rifle team. I went on to VMI. I was in small bore rifle, NCAA small bore rifle, all four years there. Um, but of course I'm from Virginia and, you know, uh, you know, a lot of people in my family would go shoot recreationally and so forth and so on. Uh, I have relatives who are really into hunting. Uh, um, just being truthful here, I've never been hunting. I don't have anything against hunting. I've I've just never been. Uh, I do target shooting, so mm-hmm. uh, that that's my thing. But then after I graduated from college, small bore shooting is such a a, a niche sport and you know need a certain type of rifle and certain types of equipment and certain type of environment to do all of that and i didn't have any of that anymore and it was very expensive to and just not practical anymore so uh that's when i started you know really getting back into um you know other other types of shooting that are are more um user friendly i guess don't require as much in the way of specialized equipment and specialized mm-hmm. environment and and that kind of thing mm-hmm. <clears throat> how much of uh and I, I don't know much about this but i try to analogize to something that i like observe or kind of perceive but like how much of the i guess the uh, like firearms fan- fandom or what you know whatever um is i guess just kind of like I think like if you like there are guys that get into like cars right and like they mm-hmm. go down the rabbit hole of cars oh, and sure. they tinker oh, yeah. with things and <clears throat> you there are guys who collect wine and they kind of go down the rabbit hole of like I have mm-hmm. to have this I got to get that and they <laughs> get obsessed with it um is is it kind of like a similar thing like once like if you if you go in then you can just go down the rabbit hole and you've got one type of firearm and then you've got to have the next type of firearm and then you hear about some like you start tinkering and like it, it, how much of it is that versus oh yeah I yeah you can I do mean, that with anything you're right you're yeah. right you can do it with wine you can do it with yes you're right and and it, it it is possible to do that with firearms as well i i am not a collector um so i i don't i don't do that i'm as I, as I mentioned, I'm mostly into target shooting. That's my thing, mm-hmm. you know? Um, and so, um, you know, handguns, rifles, those sorts of things. Yeah, I have mm-hmm. those. Uh, 
I don't feel like I need personally the latest, greatest thing that comes off the line every time they come up with, come out with some new gizmo or whatever. But um, I do go to gun shows. I do get the magazines. I do watch the, you know, the videos when they come out and so forth and so on. And so I, I try to, you know, kind of keep up with what's going on, but I don't, uh, I don't have the, the, um, financial resources or the uh, spare time or all of that to, to go completely whole hog on it. But, mm-hmm. but yeah, I mean, I know people who are probably guilty of that. So. <laughs> yeah. There's, there's, there's not many shooting ranges in, in, uh, in New, in New York, New York city. Um, maybe <laughs> not there part of New York, right? I, I would imagine you have some in, in more rural parts of your state. And so, Oh forth. yeah, yeah. No, but not, yeah, not, yeah. but not in New York. So I think there might've been one, sure, yeah. but yeah, no, uh, there's, I mean, I, uh, I, I think the, <clears throat> the, 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 the firearms discussion is way beyond the scope of like what I could talk about. I like, can inform oh, basis, yeah. but I think that, in a more general sense, I think that's why it goes back to the idea of just talking with people because I kind of feel like when you just understand people's contexts, you can understand that the same thing can be perceived in different ways. Oh, um, for sure. Yeah. And mm-hmm. has, has different, Absolutely. it's got different associations. Like mm-hmm. somebody who has gone hunting with their father and grandfather for a Thanksgiving dinner or something, you know, for their entire life. Yeah, the firearms have a completely different association than a New Yorker. None of who have really have guns. Who the only time that we hear about a gun is when there's some kind of street violence. So, yeah. um, I I think like to me what gets tiresome in, in all these debates is that there seems to be more of like almost like an imposition of you have to see things my way versus kind of be like let me see things your way. I agree. I agree. And and I think that to me would be the most helpful thing. And and that's like for me what I've been what I've found myself centering on is what I call them like four like core values, which is like just trying to be curious curious, respectful, compassionate, and humble um mm-hmm. in interactions. And I think maybe it goes to like organizationally because what I've found is the more I become aware of that, I think it's also it's easier in the working world. Like if you think about it, like a lot of the stuff about learning to be a good citizen really is just about learning how to be, coexist in a community. And we have communities, you know, in your neighborhood, you have communities at your church, you have communities on your team, you've got communities, you know, every time you're with a different group of people, there's a community. When you're working, you're in a community of people. And if you can kind of try to see things from somebody else's perspective, it might change how you manage them. It might change how you lead them. And mm-hmm. I think the, even what I see in the working world is that there's just a lot of people who've got their blinders on and are just buried and are, I don't know, they're either just kind of doing things rote or they're doing things defensively or they're doing things without trust. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. That's a big, big piece of it. I'm convinced. And yeah. trust is a social glue. I mean, that's what binds people together. And, and, and I bring uh, this up. My uh, wife works at a big investment bank and she does marketing for them. But like she was talking about how like, trying to get something through again a powerpoint slide or something requires so many people to have a viewpoint in it and i and i think part of it is kind of like people are like defensive or they're not trusting or they don't know the people to trust them i don't know what it is but there is some kind of like there's some lack of cohesion some lack of cohesive glue in Mm -hmm. in all these different communities yeah so have you ever been up to new york I have. In fact, my first trip to New York was um, was to the United States Military Academy, West Point, and I had ah. uh, I was in rifle matches uh-huh. at West Point. Okay. So, and we also um, we also went to Annapolis, of course. And mm-hmm. when I was in high school, I had uh, I went to a national rifle match at the Air Force Academy. That was fun, and so. Mm-hmm. Uh, but yeah, I've, I've, I haven't been to New York very many times, but, mm-hmm. um, but, uh, interestingly enough, the few times that I have been to New York, it was to shoot, <laughs> <laughs> but you were up, you were up by uh, West point though. It was at West point. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Okay. And then, That's and, beautiful then up there. and then much more recently, several years ago, 
I was in New York City, my only time to New York City. Mm-hmm. Um, I was there to uh, present some research at a fraud conference. Okay. Yeah. Um, and yeah, that was you... my only time. That was my only time in, in New York City. Okay. And what was your yeah. what was your perceptions of New York City? Oh, I I enjoyed it. I. My wife and I are are not big city people. So Morgantown, West Virginia, for us is fantastic. You know, it has a normal standing population of about 30,000 people. When school is in, it adds just shy of another 30,000 people. Um, That probably sounds rural to you. Uh, but we love it. You know, we, we love that as a, you know, day in a day out kind of thing. When we lived in, when I worked outside of Cleveland, we did not live in Cleveland. Well, we lived sort of just outside of Cleveland the very first year. Uh, but then we had a house built for us and we were about 35 minutes or so out of Cleveland. So that's the kind of commute I had back and forth to get, uh, they get back and forth to work at that point in time. And we lived at a little town called Streetsboro, gateway to progress, 12,000 mm-hmm. people. And mm-hmm. so we, we prefer to be, to live our lives on a day in and day out basis, kind of out of the way. We don't want to be totally in the sticks. We want to be close mm-hmm. to like Walmart or whatever, you know, that kind of thing. Mm-hmm. But we don't want to be in the thick of it, you know? Mm-hmm. Uh, and New York city is, is a fine place for us to, to visit, you know, um, mm-hmm. I don't think I would enjoy living there just because it it's the city that never sleeps. It, it's, it's a too much, yeah. too much yeah. for, for me. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, I, I prefer sort of the, uh, a more, a more sparse <laughs> environment. <laughs> right. Uh, and we still have some of the same, I'm going to biting my tongue cause I know that's not exactly right, but we still have some similar frustrations. There are traffic jams in Morgantown. The mm-hmm. streets were not meant to accommodate 60,000 people. All right. Mm-hmm. And so, mm-hmm. you know, there are times, you know, where the, you still have to wait in traffic, but it's nothing like, it's nothing like what you're enduring. Right. And so it just, <laughs> yeah. So, and people sort themselves, right. I mean, people mm-hmm. go gravitate to sort of environments that maybe sort of are more, you know, appealing to them. So that happens yeah. at some level. Yeah, I think. And so, so I, I thought it was wonderful to visit. We went to a Broadway show. What'd you uh, say? We saw the play where everything goes wrong. That might not be oh, exactly the title, but there's, a, you know, what I'm talking about. No, no, I'm not familiar with that. Oh, it was hilarious. It's something like <laughs> that. Might be the exact title: the play where everything goes wrong. And uh, yeah, look it up. It was fantastic. Okay. We loved it. <laughs> that was great. Um, yeah. So I wasn't there for very long. Uh, only a day or so, uh, but we were we were there long enough to to catch a show. And that was okay. that was really yeah. fun. Yeah, I grew up out in the suburbs of uh, in, in Long Island, and I never really came into the city. And then um, after college, I think at the end of college, when I started like coming, and my wife got a job here and got to learn it. But I think like I know for me what attracts me to new york is that i think that i'm actually kind of an introvert and i think mm. having so many people around me kind of forces me to get out of my comfort zone but in some respect get into my comfort zone mm. because i know that i feel happier being engaged with people but sure. my inclination is to not um so guilty there, your yeah mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> so yeah. I, I think and i think like the other thing is that i mean it definitely gets um it gets crazy, but I think that's why, like when people think like New Yorkers like kind of turn off or ignore each other, it's almost like they're kind of reacting the way you react. Like you, like we all kind of might feel the same thing. If you actually paid attention to it all, then you'd go crazy. So, you know, either you, if you don't live here, you can just kind of come in and leave after a day. But if you're a native New Yorker and you're dealing with this craziness all the time, you just have to kind of turn yourself off to it as a as a matter of survival it doesn't mean you don't care but it's just there's too many stimuli um so sometimes you know it's 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 probably to your detriment but i think in general if people seem turned off it's more just yeah it's a there's a, there's a lot coming at you and you just can't react to everything otherwise you'd go crazy sure yeah so i mean and i, I guess that's uh I, I, I guess so sometimes when I'm talking on the podcast, I feel like it's uh, 
it's not trying to i think it's good to think that you love where you live but i think it's also good to realize that not everybody would love where you live and that's okay like they don't have to love it but you it's good to know why you love it and good to know why others might not love it i agree with that yeah <laughs> yeah that makes good so, sense yeah so if you could live in another part of the country do you have any other places you'd go well so beth's parents now live in florida they decided that they had had enough of the crazy winters in uh in northeast ohio and so they pulled the plug years ago and moved down to florida that's where they live now and so so we occasionally visit them mm-hmm. and they've got a, a pretty, pretty plush gig down there. So that's tempting sometimes to maybe mm-hmm. get a little closer to them. Uh, and my family is still in central Virginia. So, okay. you know, those are, those are places that are near and dear to my heart. Yeah. <clears throat> now, um, you know, one of the things that I think people, when they think about the country and like the ideology is there seems to be like, you know, the coasts think one way and the internal part of the country. I mean, not, not in all respects, but think differently. Mm-hmm. And like I was, I read a book about Lewis and Clark and um, it kind of, when you read about that, when I read about their journey and was reminded of how much they depended on the rivers, it made yeah. me think about how you know, one of the things that different being on the coast versus being in, inside the country in the interior is that in the interior it's the, all those rivers that kind of maybe not now so much but historically for a long time what united the, the country was was those rivers mm-hmm. so i wonder if that's also one thing that kind of like it's historically relevant to understanding like there's cultural similarity in, in a vast swath of the middle of the country because it was, they were connected by those rivers in a way that they wouldn't have been connected to the coasts. Yeah. Geography that can bring sense? people together. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Geographic features can bring people together and you need water and you, yeah. know, you know, yeah, I mean, that's, yeah. I mean, that's, that's where population centers form close to rivers Yeah, uh, is the source of water and water is a, a mode of transportation. And yeah, I mean, it makes total sense. Yeah. And we need ways of bringing people back into proximity with each other. You know, uh, back in 1954, this guy named Gordon Allport, who uh, basically published a book and he lays out his contact hypothesis. And the, the main nut that he was trying to crack at the time was dealing with, uh, with, Uh, racial discrimination and prejudice. And what he proposed in his book is, you know, we've got these, these ways of being in our country where people um, kind of form into their own distinct groups. You know, the people who are like me are in my in group and anyone who's not in my in group is part of my out group. Right. Um, and the people in the other group are thinking the same thing, right? You know, and and they kind of they separate from each other. You know, they kind of go off and they do their own things, right? Um, and and they don't get along with each other when they do come into contact. And and paradoxically, what Allport says is now what you got to do is. You've got to put them in contact with each other um, and sustain that contact. Because what happens is when when you get into this us versus them thinking, right, very prone to stereotyping, labeling the other side, right, um, usually in a negative way, right? And, and that prejudice then manifests itself in discrimination, right, because – they're the enemy. They're the villain. Something bad about them. We're good. They're bad. And 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 both groups will treat each other this way. And so what he's saying is you got to break down those silos so that people will get individuated information, so that people will correct their negative stereotypes, so that people will see that, you know, 
will see the areas of shared humanity. So people will see that there is middle ground. So people will see that they, that these dis- distinct groups uh, do have middle ground, do have things that they agree on. And, um, and so he says, this contact, especially under certain conditions, is actually the antidote, right? Conditions where the groups come together under equal status, the, the groups have a, a common and superordinate goal. Uh, the groups have important forms of material support to enable them to coexist in peace, these sorts of things. And and over the years, a lot of social science research has, has basically tested the contact hypothesis in various settings right? to deal with racial, har- racial harmony, which is the context in which it sort of originally um, was 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 kind of developed. Right. I guess. Uh, but in all these other different areas as well, and meta-analytic studies have shown that uh, the contact hypothesis really stood, stood the test of time. And uh, and so, again, that kind of takes me back to what I was saying earlier about Braver Angels and a lot of these other organizations that are kind of working in a similar space where, where we're trying to bring people together who are different, who do have different views, reds and blues, as we say in Braver Angels, but liberals, conservatives, Democrats, Republicans, et cetera, et cetera, right? To bring people together uh, to understand where there, where there are areas of, of agreement, where we have more in common than we might otherwise be led to believe, that there are important differences and, and we don't seek to sweep those under the rug or to minimize those, but we shouldn't maximize those either, right? We, we need a more accurate view of, of the conflict. And the only way to get a more accurate view of the conflict is in proximity to the people we disagree with. We've, we've got to, we've got to somehow hold it together. Right. And, and so disagreement's not bad, um, necessarily, but it should be accurate disagreement, not exaggerated disagreement, not disagreement grounded in hyperbole and, um, and, um, you know, yeah, excessive yeah. rhetoric ratched up to eleven and all the right. time. Yeah. So. And I mean, the and the idea of like harmony is also about, you know, I think the country has definitely a different place than it was a generation or two ago, as far as like maybe like the races goes. But I think that the new thing for our generation is like, it's the politics, right? Like if you wore a Donald Trump hat in the middle of New York, you know, in certain parts of New York city, those parts that would be welcoming to many other types of people and many other circumstances might not necessarily welcome you. Mm -hmm. Um, So I, and I, and I, and, and, I think that in many respects, people will at least say that they're not um, prejudiced or are trying not to be. Um, but the second you bring up politics, they revert to it and be left or right. Like, oh, you're you know from New York or you're from West Virginia. Um, and, and this and is that's the okay. in-group, out-group. This is a yeah, basic, yeah. yeah, this is this is basic intergroup relations 101. In-groups, out-groups, I, and... You know, uh, it doesn't just happen around. Uh, it doesn't just happen around race or gender, yeah. or it can happen around politics, and yeah. uh, and it absolutely does. Yeah, and, and um, w- the way I see the w- the w- way, I guess the the politician that, I, and I noticed this like in my text messages that I was getting from all these like Democratic candidates because we you know give them money at some point, and obviously our our number got circulated around but like all those messages are all based in fear and i I don't know that it's any different on the on the right but Mm -hmm. i can say on the left like you know more than half of them it's just like they're gonna come get you the MAGA republicans the radical MAGA republicans the extreme like it's just doom and gloom and i've i've Mm -hmm. taken to responding to every one of those text messages Yeah. 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 Right. And I just, I mean, I I can rattle off a bunch of them too. Yeah. Yeah. Mm -hmm. yeah. Sure. And I say, and 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 I've taken telling them that I think that they're wrong. Please take me off your email list. And I think you're being lazy because it's lazy marketing and you're being irresponsible, if not dangerous. And I say, take me off your list because I, and I think that's the worst thing. And I don't know if that's a bunch of consultants that are just saying, Hey, just mention, you know, Biden and guns or mention Donald Trump and MAGA, and you're going to get 
result. But I think that that goes back to like all of us need to start taking some responsibility to like be aware to not fall for those. But also, like who are these politicians that are letting their consultants just let them do that? Is it really just about you getting enough money to win an election? Like, is that all that matters? And 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 if it does to them, that I don't want to vote for them, and I don't want them in office, left or right. One of the things that Braver Angels is doing now. And not to keep coming back to that, but since I am involved with the organization and I have, you know, and, and you are as well, but, I, you know, this really kind of touches on this very issue. About a year or so ago, Braver Angels launched a new initiative called Braver Politics, where they are taking some of their programming, the classic red blue workshop and things like this and tweaking it and actually conducting these, these programs with elected officials. They're doing it a lot in New Hampshire. They had a training in the New Hampshire state legislature. Um, there are people in Congress who are participating. Them and their staffs are going through Braver Angels training together. And it's just remarkable. We, we're trying to do something like that here in West Virginia. We haven't mm. quite gotten enough traction just yet, but we, we are optimistic because West Virginians have this sort of quintessential reputation of, you know, through the years of, of being able to, um, you know, sort of uh, have this reputation of, of hospitality and, um, you know, sort of uh, Southern, Southern manners and civility and things like this. And so I think there's a legacy here. I think there's, there's something, something here that, uh, you know, would, um, would make this fertile ground for that kind of uh, that kind of programming. So, so yeah. I, I hope we'll be able to pull it off. Yeah. Well, you know, to refer to you were mentioning some of the other groups, and I'm on. This is on uh, my mind because I was emailing with somebody about it. But um, it was an earlier podcast that I was talking to a friend in, in the wine business, and I was asking him, like, when he has you know different wine distributors like coming saying, "Hey, you should buy this, you should buy that," and I was like, "How can you tell the difference between a trend and a transformation in the market?" And mm -hmm. he said, "Like a transformation." A trend is when you just start seeing like the same kind of thing, like a rosé is the new thing and people just start all making the same kind of rosé just to, to exploit the market and get money. He said the transformation is where you start seeing people doing their own thing. You start seeing a diversity in the movement. And I think that what gives me a lot of, I think, hope and belief and I think the, I think the long-term viability and impact of the I, I call it the bridging movement but you know the deploy the, all these efforts is that i think there's so many different people in so many different areas doing so many different things to try to build those bridges um that it, it makes me feel like you know this is something that's really it's like a, it is truly a grassroots movement there's no singular person who's like leading this it's a bunch of people saying you know what i'm not i can't take it anymore i want to offer my solution and mm -hmm. I think that's the beauty of America is that there are, it is our country to control and it takes time, but we we're the ones who are ultimately accountable and it, not everybody can do it, but it seems like there are more and more people that are stepping up and trying to do the right thing. Yeah. Yeah. That's a, such an encouragement. Yeah. So, um, so if, so for me, if I were to come to West Virginia, what would you, what would you suggest to somebody, a New Yorker coming to West Virginia to either, you know, you're a part of it or elsewhere to have them get a feel for your beloved state? There are so many things I could say, but the one that I'll go with, since you probably don't have enough time for me to go through my list exhaustively <laughs> is I would, I would do a waterfall tour. I would do a waterfall mm -hmm. tour. That's one of the first really? things we did when we moved to North central West Virginia, there are a lot of really cool waterfalls that. So we, obviously we have a lot of wonderful nature venues here and so, you know, places to go hiking and, and all of this. So, um, and really kind of pretty close to us. There are just a bunch of them going in various directions. Um, you know, 
these hiking trails that have these magnificent waterfalls. And so that was one of the first things we did when we moved here. We would just mm-hmm. go around and, and go hiking and mm-hmm. check out these waterfalls and take pictures of them. And mm-hmm. in some cases, let the kids go run and play at a safe distance. <laughs> so, <laughs> yeah. So, um, yeah, just the, the natural beauty of this place is, is just amazing. Really? So much to be thankful for. And and I have a, a a good friend who I guess said he went skiing. He go he went skiing there, so there are mount, significant mountains to have skiing. Mm-hmm. Absolutely, as well in the winter. Yeah, I, I'm not a skier, but yes, neither am I. Um, yeah, yeah, yeah. We have that, yeah. and uh, and that makes that makes good sense in the winter months. You know, uh-huh. uh, if if you're into that kind of thing, mm-hmm. so. And yeah. is there, would you say that in your area, is there a certain common link with like people in like Western Pennsylvania, Southeastern Ohio, Kentucky? Like, is there, is the, the, the state borders kind of an artificial thing or I don't know if I'm asking the right question. Yeah. So that would be a, a good question for my two older boys because mm-hmm. In eighth grade here, you have to take West Virginia history. Uh, and so they they go all through it. Mm-hmm. And one of the cool things about it actually is that um, that our, our kids after eighth grade year or during eighth grade year, they take a West Virginia trip and they go uh, all, all over the state. They go down to Charleston, which is our state capital. Mm-hmm. There's a right across from the Capitol complex is West Virginia, the West Virginia State Museum, which is amazing. Um, there are other places they go throughout the state, uh, state Seneca rocks, Cooper's rock, which is here in Morgantown or just outside of Morgantown, uh, just go all over. Uh, and, and they go to, a an old coal mining town, mm-hmm. um, loads of fun checking this stuff yeah. out. So, uh, why was I telling you that you had asked, what did you ask? I was asking if, like the, uh, if if you if there is a commonality between people okay, like yeah, across yeah. the borders. Yeah, so, what, what, how did the borders originate? I don't know. Uh-huh. But here in Morgantown, we're in the north central part of the state. We're not in the upper Panhandle part, but we're mm-hmm. we're minutes away from uh, from Pennsylvania, mm-hmm. and we are minutes away from Maryland. So mm-hmm. it's kind of like oh, okay. the you know oh, it's, yeah, it's yeah. Kind of, where we live is kind of like a, a tri-state area. Yeah. if you will. Right. Yeah. Uh, and so um, we're a little bit farther from the Ohio border mm-hmm. and from the Virginia border where we live. Okay. Yeah. So like you're near like just a few hour drive from like Penn state. So um, we're about an hour South of Pittsburgh. Oh, okay. Hour, right. hour and a half south of Pittsburgh. Okay. All right. Still towards the Pittsburgh western. Pittsburgh is actually our closest major airport. Okay. Yeah. All right. Yeah. Okay. All right. So. Um, well, we're starting to approach the hour mark here, so I should probably wrap up. But can I ask, like, what what gives you hope at the end of the day? Uh, what gives me hope? Well, I do see a lot of good organizations doing a lot of really great things in the, the depolarization and, and bridge building space. Um, I hope we are on the right trajectory with those initiatives. Um, and, you know, time will tell. We'll just have to see. Ultimately, you know, uh, on a personal basis, I'm an evangelical Christian, and I believe that God is good and God is sovereign. And my ultimate hope isn't in this world. It lies beyond. But I think that there are some, some wonderful blessings that we are fortunate to enjoy in this country. And we have amazing freedoms. We have amazing opportunities. People from all around the world are, to this day, sacrificing so much just to try to come here. And uh, so what a blessing we have to, 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 to live here 
and to be able to enjoy the the freedoms and the, the structures and the opportunities that are are at our fingertips here. But we face some real challenges, and I think that there are. I think that we're starting to see critical mass in terms of people, in terms of organizing efforts, uh, in terms of programming. I think the body of social science research is strong enough to point us into some productive directions. I think there are so many things that are going for us right now um, that, that, that are in our favor. And we just need to find a way to work together to capitalize on those opportunities, leverage those opportunities to, um, to really take advantage of this pluralistic society that, that we have. Perfectly said. All right, Ed. Well, thank you so very much for you know for you know responding to my email and and rescheduling a few times and and making time this evening. It's been a real pleasure. I really appreciate it, Michael. I really enjoyed our conversation. Thank you for inviting me. Right, thank you, and uh, thank you to all the listeners and viewers out there. May you go out and explore our country with curiosity, respect, compassion, and humility. All right, take care. Thank you so much. <laughs>